Well, good morning, church. It's always a blessing for us to, to get to be together, to sing, uh, to pray, to welcome one another through, through God's welcome uh, to the table where we're reminded of the grace that makes our lives possible. And now as we take some time to gather together as a family of faith around God's word. We're going to be continuing this morning with our, our current message series, our, our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And I, I want to begin by reminding you of, of kind of the, the project, right, the mission that Matthew's carrying in his heart when he first sits down to write his gospel. He is trying his hardest to reach people who've, who've grown up within the faith of Israel, who for one reason or another, ended up missing the fact that Jesus really was that long-awaited Messiah. He's, he's trying to help them see what they, they weren't able to see the first time around. And that's not an easy thing to do. And one of the ways that, that Matthew tries to help reach them is to point out to them the ways in which Jesus, his life and his ministry, his words, they echo over and over, things from Israel's past, and, and not just things from the past, but they, they echo the hope that they have of the future. So he finds ways to point out how Jesus is like a new kind of David. He points out how Jesus is like a new kind of Elijah, a prophet who can bring powerful healing into people's lives. And he also takes time to point out how Jesus can be this new kind of Moses, now, he does this primarily by, by just focusing on the fact that, that Jesus gives a new kind of teaching, similar to the, the original five books of the law that Israel received as a gift from Moses. Jesus ends up in the Gospel of Matthew being, being somebody who carries on that same teaching ministry. He's, he's not undoing what Moses did, but he is helping people understand, imagine what it would really be like for them to live out those five books of the law. So in Matthew, you start out with the Sermon on the Mount, right? which not only through, through the, the content of what he's teaching reminds the people of the things that Moses talked about, but even the location reminds them of where Moses was when he first received and then shared the law with them. And then from there, you go to chapter 10, the commission of the 12 apostles, where Jesus says, you know, the kinds of things you've been watching me do, the kinds of things you've heard me say, I want you to know that through the power of the Spirit, you're going to be able to do those same things. You're going to be able to speak that kind of healing into the life of the world. And then you go to Matthew 13, where he talks about what it's like to look at our our lives, our everyday, ordinary lives, and how we can see the ways that heaven is breaking in to our world. And so he tells these stories, these parables, where he says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says that heaven is very much, in some ways, like the things that we see all around us, that, that heaven is able to reach us if we'll open our hearts and our minds to receive it. And then in Matthew 18, he, he kind of talks about the shared demands of what it's like to live in the kingdom. If we start to see the kingdom breaking in and we want to be a part of it, well then, what is our, our partnership in all that? What's the role that we're supposed to play? 
And then as he gets closer to the cross and closer to the end of his earthly ministry, in chapters 23 through 25, 24 through 25, he talks about the prophecy of the end of the age. He talks about what it's going to be like when it's all said and done. Now, if you were somebody who had grown up focused on the five original books of the law that Moses gave you, and then you see Jesus giving these five sets of teachings, you start to realize, oh, he really, he doesn't just remind us of Moses, but he is a new kind of Moses. He's a new kind of lawgiver. And if we want to be people who get to experience the kingdom, we need to listen to what he is trying to say to us. Now, we have already, in this study, we've looked at those first three sermons. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 18, the shared demands of kingdom life. And because we don't have as much time as I would like for us to have to dig into every single verse of that teaching, I want to just give you a quick basic outline of what's going on as he talks about what is, what is God asking of us, what is God inviting us to, what is God challenging us to try to embrace as we become more and more kingdom people. So he starts by talking about who the greatest in the kingdom, who, who those people really are. And he says they're people who receive that life as children with that same sense of optimism and hope without having to understand everything the way adults like to try to understand everything, to just accept that God really is working in our world whether we can explain it all the time or not. And then the next teaching section, he talks about us being careful not to be stumbling stones, which Jesus has been talking about a couple of other times already, where he, he says to Peter and all the other disciples, we can either be that bedrock of grace that the church is supposed to be built on, or we can accidentally, we can unintentionally become stones that cause people to stumble as they try to approach, as they try to draw closer to that life of the kingdom, we can be the ones who we don't realize, but we're the ones in the way. Well, in this part of his teaching, when he talks about stumbling stones, he's, he goes a step further and he says, we can cause other people to stumble into, into sin. And we don't want to be that kind of community. We, we don't want to be a place where we're causing other people to lose a, a sense of who they're really supposed to be in the way of Jesus. And then he moves on from that to tell the parable of the wandering sheep. You know the, the story where he says, you know, if, if you had a hundred sheep and one wandered off, wouldn't a good shepherd leave the 99 behind and go find that lost sheep? Don't you want to be a community where if anybody wanders off, we chase after them for the sake of the kingdom? And then he shifts from that to talking directly about what does it mean for us to be a community that deals, not, doesn't deny sin, but deals with sin in our lives. And then he, he concludes that teaching in Matthew 18 by telling yet another parable, this time about a servant who receives mercy from his king, who he has this, this debt that he owes that he, he has no hope of repaying. The king forgives the debt, and then he turns around and has a fellow servant who owes him a, a handful of pocket change, and he refuses to show the same mercy that he's been given to his fellow servant. And Jesus says, that's not how it's going to be at church. That's not how it's going to be with my people. My people are going to share the same kind of grace and mercy with one another that God has poured into their lives. 
Well, this morning, we're, we're going to focus in on verses 15 through 20, right? dealing with sin in the church, not denying it, not calling it something else, not pretending like it doesn't happen anymore, but dealing with it, facing it, working through it. Uh, and so I want us to, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18, open up to verse 15, and we're going to read these instructions together. If your brother or sister sins against you, now that phrase against you is in italics because we're going to talk about it a little bit more once we've read everything. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and challenge them when you're alone together. And if they listen to you, then you've won over your brother and sister. But if they won't listen, take with you one or two others so that, quote, Every word may be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Jesus here is quoting from one of those original five books of the law, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19.15. Then he continues, but if they still won't pay attention, share it with the church. And if they won't pay attention even to the church, treat them as you would a Gentile and tax collector. I assure you, that whatever you fasten on earth will be fastened in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth will be loosened in heaven. Again, I assure you that if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, then my Father who is in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. Now that last verse, verse 20, gets kind of ripped out of this context and quoted the beginning of lightly attended worship services all over the place, where you kind of look out and you kind of say, you know, there's not as many of us here because we're traveling for, for spring break, but you know, Jesus says where two or three are gathered in our name, God's with us. Okay, the problem with that usage of that passage is, first of all, you can worship God all by yourself. Now, you need at least one other person for us to worship God together, but he's saying something very different in Matthew 18, 20, then, you don't need a large crowd to have a good worship service. He's talking about the church doing the difficult work of reconciliation. That that's when Jesus is with us. When we feel scared and we don't know how to overcome a disagreement or a conflict and we, we're working together to try to find our way back to one another, Jesus is always present in that work. Okay, now, I want us to kind of take everything he says there and lay it out in a way where we can think through, okay, what is the actual process that he is prescribing, that he's giving us when it comes to how we can productively deal with sin in the church, right? And so first of all, he says, basically, if you're the best person to go to someone who's losing their struggle with sin, go to them alone and challenge them to recommit to the way of Christ. Now, the reason that I'm, I'm using this phrase, if you're the best person to go, is if, if you use your, either your app or you open it back up to your Bible and you look at your translation and you look at verse 15, some translations say, if your brother or sister sins against you. Others just say, if your brother or sister sins. Now this is important for us to understand kind of how we how you guys have a Bible, whether it's on a phone or, or printed out, right? We have been given a Bible that's constructed of thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible. We have more copies of the Bible than any other ancient work. 
And sometimes what happens when people are copying things down, it's amazing how carefully the people who were given the task of copying Scripture over the ages, how, how much they, they looked at every single letter, every single punctuation mark as, as, as time changed, the, the way that the, the languages we were using from Hebrew and Greek to Latin and then into, into English eventually, all those things, right? That there's all this stuff going on that the Holy Spirit is working through ordinary, everyday people to hold on to the essence of Scripture so that we as ordinary, everyday people can hear from God. But there's a lot of moving parts in how we get our Scripture. And one of the things that happened early on with people that were copying Matthew is we had a bunch of people that had copies of Matthew that said, if your brother or sister sins against you, we had other copies that just say, if your brother or sister sins. And the reason I think it's important for us to know about those two choices here is that the, the church at some point said, this can't only be something we do if I decide you've done something that, that just hurts me or negatively affects me. If we're going to live in community and I see you losing your struggle with sin, even if it's not directly hurting me, if I'm the best person to go to you, I'm, I, need to, I need to find the courage to go to you. Now, we need to really wrestle with whether or not I'm the best person to have this difficult conversation with somebody. But if through prayer and seeking God's wisdom and perhaps seeking the wisdom of other people, I come to the place where I decide I probably am the best person, I don't get to use a translation of Matthew 18, 15 that says, well, only if they've sinned against me do I have to be the one who goes and has that awkward conversation. No. You absolutely need to go and have a conversation with somebody who's sinned in a way that hurts you. But the horizon is bigger than that. The responsibility you and I have as brothers and sisters in a church community, it's bigger than that. It's not only if you do something that, that hurts me, it's if I see you doing something that's hurting other people, including if the primary person that's hurting is you. Right? They can both be true at the same time. We don't have to make a choice. We don't want to find a way to try to limit who all Jesus is calling us to try to reach out to. Okay, so the first thing is we go to that person alone. We try to talk to them out of a concern for them, a love for them. We offer to help them. And Jesus knows that in a lot of cases, that's going to work. But in other cases, it's not going to work. So what happens if that doesn't work? If you have the courage, you go, you have that interaction, that conversation, it doesn't work, then you've tried and you're done, right? No. Right? Jesus keeps going and he says, okay, well, if they don't listen, try again. This time, bring along one or two other people with you, people who, again, you think have a, a really good chance of reaching that person. Not somebody, none of this is about condemnation or embarrassment. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with this text is too often we have seen people in church call somebody else out and the spirit within them is just a spirit of condemnation. It's a spirit of judgment. It's not a spirit of restoration. It's not a spirit of, of actively loving that person enough to say something that's difficult to say. Okay, so you, you didn't listen to me. There's other people in your life who you might listen to. I go to them. I ask them to come back so that we can talk with you. 
Right? Maybe they're going to say something in a way that I didn't know how to say it, or they're going to have a relationship with you, a history with you that I don't have that maybe will help, help you actually hear what it is I'm trying to, to say to you. Okay, well, if you do that, then you're done. Nope. Jesus says, no, if, if that doesn't work, you're going to have to try again. This time, sharing the situation with the church and asking the church community, how are we going to do this? How are we going to help this person? Now, this is where I think it becomes really important for us to, to remind ourselves that the very first version of church in the first century, these were church communities that would fit inside of a relatively large house. 30, 40 people, including children. Right, that's one fraction of one section of our building. Everybody knew each other. Everybody had some shared history together. Everybody not only knew one another, but they knew their families, they knew their kids, they, they, they were sharing life together. So again, this isn't primarily about expanding the audience to try to shame somebody into some kind of behavior. This isn't the church community getting its pound of flesh when somebody sins and we haul them in front of everybody and say, look at how bad their sin is, and we hope that's what wakes them up. Now, this is still an expectation that we're going to a relatively small group of people. It's bigger than one or two other people, but it's still people who know this person, care about them, and have a chance of reaching them. Then he says, if that doesn't work, well... You've done what you can. And then he uses this interesting phrase, treat them as you would, what does he say? Just write it together. A Gentile or a tax collector. Now, that's a loaded phrase because there's a huge difference between how Everyday, ordinary, first century Jews treated Gentiles and tax collectors and how Jesus treats Gentiles and tax collectors. Jesus doesn't pretend that Gentiles are Jews. Jesus doesn't pretend that tax collectors aren't struggling with greed and materialism and hurting their neighbors to get ahead. Jesus tells the truth about all that, but Jesus still has a place in his life for them. What Jesus isn't willing to do is to pretend they're not struggling with sin or to be pulled into that sin. So even when you get to step four, it's not that you get to wash your hands of somebody and say, look, three strikes and you're out. It's baseball. It has to be true. No. Even then, we have to figure out a way to say, look, I've tried in this instance. I've tried in this moment to do what I can do to reach you. I've tried not just once, but two and three times. I've tried using other people to come alongside of me and partner with me, and I still can't seem to get through to you. We can't seem to reach you. So we're going to stop talking about this. We're, we're going to stop trying to force you to do something you're not ready to do. When you're, when you're ready, we'll do everything we can to help. Right? But that's a far cry from saying, you know what? I think you just like sinning. So get away from me, and uh, you're going to get what's coming to you. 
Right? Again, I think the temptation as we read these verses, as we read into them, our own negative prior experiences with church trying to deal with sin. And saying things like, hate the sin, love the sinner, but that is a lot easier to say than it is to actually do. We tend to, if we make a mistake there, we tend to slide into making people who are struggling with sin feel like they're the problem more than their actual problems are the problem. And once somebody feels like that, the chance that we're going to be the people who help bring them back to some kind of life of healing, to some kind of starting over, to some kind of second chance, once we start to condemn people because their brokenness threatens us or scares us or makes us uncomfortable, we will not be the people who God is able to use in their lives to bring them back to him. That doesn't mean God's not going to use other people in their lives to try to bring them back. But brothers and sisters, wouldn't you rather treat people who are struggling with sin in such a way that you could be the bridge eventually for them to come back to God? And I know I want to be somebody who finds a way to be that bridge. I don't want to be the reason that they keep running. Okay, now here's the thing with this list. I have heard preachers and teachers talk about Matthew 18 my entire life. And some former fashion of this list gets put up. Back way when I was first going to church, I remember preachers having full-blown overhead projectors next to the pulpit that they could write on, and you know, they... So, so this is my whole life. I've seen this list in some form or fashion up on the wall. And then they basically act like it's this easy. You just follow the recipe for reconciliation. It just works. Jesus told us how to do it. Let's do it. Okay, brother so-and-so, get up here. Let's stand and sing and let's go to lunch. You know, it's as if when you give people good, true information, they automatically change everything about how they deal with conflict in their own lives or struggles in their own You just point out to them, this is step one, step two, step three, step four, we're done. Solved. The issue's not the list. You know, I know exactly what I need to do to feel better and be healthier. I don't do it because I'm I'm an idiot. I'm waiting for the, the pathway to being healthy and feeling better that doesn't require me to change. You waiting on that too, any of you? I'm waiting for the magic bullet. Just because we have Jesus saying this is what church is supposed to look like and we all assume that we agree with everything Jesus says and that we, if we agree with what Jesus says, we're automatically doing what Jesus says. There's some missing pieces there in connecting those dots. Why, if we have this list, do we struggle to actually follow it? I'll tell you why. Because it doesn't get easier. It's never gonna be comfortable it's never going to always work. But Jesus asks us to do it anyway. So let's talk a little bit about why it's never going to get easy. 
and it's never going to get comfortable. And why? Because it's not easy and it's uncomfortable, we tend to beg off pretty quickly and just decide that what we'll do within church is we'll talk about abstract sin out there, but we're never going to actually talk about my sin or your sin, right? Why, why do we decide we, we aren't up to that? The, the first thing I would say is this. I think that, that there are, are times where we don't apply accountability because we want to avoid accountability. Or let me say it this way. I don't speak a truth to you that I wouldn't want you speaking back to me. And because I don't want you saying something hard to me, I just kind of decide in my heart, I'm not going to say anything that would leave me open to criticism. It's like we get in here and we think everybody's just waiting to see an opening to, to attack each other at church. And again, I don't think it's because we think that's necessarily going to happen in this church, but I think it's because we've seen it happen in church somewhere at some point in our life where we actually get here on Sunday mornings and it's not just that we're trying to put on our physical Sunday best, we're trying to put our best spiritual mask on to get in here and act like everything's okay so nobody notices that we're struggling. Because we don't want somebody to say, I, I can see that you're struggling and I love you, and I care about you, and is there something I could do to help? We'd rather just not talk about it. So church isn't a bunch of people who are struggling with sin. Church is a place where we act like sin is just in our past. Man, that's a problem. That's a problem at the core of what it means to be or not be faithful to church. Faithful as church. So I don't say, hey, um, I'm a little nervous that you're spending more time watching cable news than reading your Bible. Because I don't want you to say it back to me. I, I don't say, you know, I'm afraid that you're making this ministry a little bit more about you than about Christ. Because I definitely don't want you saying that back to me. I don't say to somebody I'm close enough to, and again, this is all assuming I'm the best person to say it to you. I'm not just looking for opportunities to point out some, some struggle I don't have so you can't say it back to me. I, I, I don't say, you know, I, I'm worried that that story you just told, it wasn't exactly what really happened. I mean, it made you look better, but it wasn't exactly what happened. I don't say that to you because I don't want you to say it back to me. Now again, all of this has to do with why we're talking like this to one another. And if the only reason I'm calling out your sin is because I think your sin is worse than mine, and so then by calling it out, it makes me look better, that has nothing to do with the spirit Jesus is talking about in terms of being church. What Jesus is saying is, I should love you enough to see a place in your life where you're struggling to not to get to experience what it's like to be like Christ in that area of your life. I see it. I care about you. We have enough relationship where we trust each other. And so it's out of a concern, a true concern for you, not a pretend one, 
a real concern for you that I would say, hey, I'm a little worried you're trying to define yourself based on how other people in your career see you. Man, I've been there before myself. I'm going to tell you there's no life there. Right? Like, how do we do that? Well, well, the first thing we better make sure is before we open our mouths to talk to anyone about their struggle, who are we saying it for? It better be for them and for Jesus before it's ever for me. Brothers and sisters, when the church becomes a place where we can't talk about how each one of us can become more and more like Christ, more than we are right now, if we can't talk about growing areas in what it means to be a follower of Jesus, if all we're going to do is just have a ceasefire of criticism because we've seen what negative and toxic criticism can do where we just say, okay, we don't know how to do it well. We don't know how to do it in productive ways, so we're just not going to talk about things at all that we're really all wrestling with. All of that, brothers and sisters, I think it's the church chasing after the gospel of image management instead of chasing after the gospel that restores God's image in every single one of us. Real church is the place where image management comes to die. And then we're resurrected into true, authentic followers of Jesus who have places in our lives where we can see Christ clearly in us. And then we have other places in our life where we're, we're still wrestling with Christ. We're still pushing Christ's way farther from who we, we really are. And I need brothers and sisters. You need brothers and sisters. You need somebody in your life who shares your faith commitment, who says to you, man, I love you and I'm worried about this. Or I'm concerned about this. This is not, Jesus talked clear. Before you go and try to take out the splinter in someone else's eye, make sure you take out the telephone pole that you're, you have coming out of the side of your head, right? That, all of that has to do with the spirit of gotcha, right? I, I see your mistake. Let me talk about your mistake. No, what would it mean for us to trust one another enough to say, I'm really struggling where I, I seem to think that if I move into the right house, I'm going to suddenly have the right life. Does anybody else struggle with materialism in here? We don't talk about it much because it makes too many of us feel called out. You know those weeks where I'm preaching and I'm preaching to everybody, but you're afraid I'm, I'm secretly preaching just to you? I'm not ever doing that. I'm mostly preaching to me. It's just that we have enough shared struggles. There's times when what I'm wrestling with in a given week is the same thing you're wrestling with. And wouldn't it help to know you're not alone? Real church, mercy church, is where image management comes to die. So that we can be resurrected into true, authentic followers of Jesus who can see with clear eyes the places we still need to change and grow and we can, we can work together in that. Okay, the other thing that I think we have to learn how to trust is the fact that there's this special kind of unity 
within community that we can only experience on the other side of faithfully fighting for one another, not just with one another, for one another. Churches, from the beginning of the existence of the church, church has known how to fight with one another. Which is, again, I think a reason that we try to run away from this stuff. We've seen churches have ugly fights that don't bring about anything good for anybody. So we don't ever fight with one another. But here's the problem. When we're fighting with one another because we're really fighting against one another, that's when things go wrong. But if in trying to fight for someone else, there are moments when we're fighting with them, well, God can use that. God can use uncomfortable, difficult interactions where we're speaking truth to one another out of a love and a concern for one another and somebody walking beside us would think that we're having a disagreement, we're having an argument, and we probably are. But if underneath all that, we're not just fighting with one another, we're fighting for one another, well then that's, that's the kind of fight that the church needs to figure out how to have way more often. There are things in, in the life of a Christian that are absolutely worth fighting for. And there's another sermon out there somewhere where we could talk about all the things that the church should be fighting for. What should the church be for? Right? That's a great question. That's not this sermon. This sermon is trying to get us to ask the question, who are we fighting for? Not just what, but who? And is there anybody in this church you're fighting for? I don't care what it is they're struggling with. I don't care what it is that may have caused some sort of moment where you're going to have to, you're going to, have to enter into an uncomfortable, difficult interaction with them Are you doing it because you're trying to partner with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in their life and you're open to to God using them in your life as well? Is it it this mutual sharing of souls? Or is it just a one-sided criticism that you end up feeling like, well, it says in Matthew 18 that, you know, I can pull you aside and call you out and you're supposed to receive it well and any time we use Matthew 18 to make things worse instead of help draw both of us closer to Jesus, we are misusing it. But doesn't the church need to have hard conversations where we start to tell one another, here's an aspect of our church life where I'm afraid we're following more closely the ways of the world than we're following in the way of Jesus? Shouldn't the, the bond that we share be strong enough to handle those kinds of disagreements? If the 12 apostles couldn't agree on the best ways to follow Jesus as a community, don't you think we're going to have honest, difficult, at times heated conversations about the best way to be faithful to what God's calling us to do and be? If we aren't going to trust the love of God that makes our lives possible as a church, if we're not going to trust that love enough to have hard conversations We'll just have a lot of nice conversations that don't help anybody. That don't change anybody. That don't challenge anybody. That may be a version of church, but that's not Mercy Church. Because at Mercy Church, we trust in God's grace enough to try to remind one another over and over of of God's truth. 
And that's not just some set of ideas that we either agree with or we don't. God's truth is you and me becoming more and more like Jesus. That's God's truth. We're going to find a way to call each other to that place. I want to to close by saying something that I think Jesus has the courage to be be really straightforward about that other times we might be tempted to look away. And that's when he says, even when we manage to have that courage, right? Even when we faithfully fight for someone who's losing their struggle with sin, there are going to be times when we feel like we're not just losing that conversation, but we're losing them. All of us have had people in our lives who are struggling with something dark and sinister and we've tried to reach them, we've tried to wake them up, we've tried to help them and they have pushed us away at every turn and we get to the place where we think, is something wrong with us, that we're, we're the problem. That there's someone out there that, that could have navigated all that and could have rescued them but the truth is sometimes, brothers and sisters, there's people who are still struggling with the darkness who haven't made up their minds yet of which direction they want to go and you can't drag them out of that. That doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It, it's just the way sometimes people, it's what's going on inside of them. And if they can't tell you exactly what's going on inside of them, what's the chances you're going to perfectly figure it out from the outside looking in, right? Sometimes we try our hardest. It doesn't mean that defeat is how their story's going to end, right? The story's not over yet. So if we're going to be people who belong to Mercy Church, even when we've done everything we could think of to try to reach somebody, to try to rescue someone, to try to be there for them, if they won't accept it yet, we don't just write them off. We wait and we pray and we hope. And maybe it will be you in the future that God uses to speak to them, to start over in that conversation, but maybe it won't be you. And isn't it wonderful to know that when you're trying to rescue someone, you're never trying to do that all by yourself? Even if it feels that way? Brothers and sisters, Matthew 18 is not a three strikes and you're out justification for giving up on people. It's not. It's trying to lay out the hard, uncomfortable, challenging work of reconciliation in a community of people where nobody's perfect yet. But it is never permission to just write somebody off. Because when he says, you treat those people like like a tax collector or a Gentile, he also says, you look at how I treat those people. You look at the welcome I extend to those people. You look at how I embrace them. I don't expect them to get their lives cleaned up before I invite them in. I invite them in and trust that this community will help them cleanse their lives with the goodness and the grace of Jesus, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through the love of the Father, that their lives will be made new. That's Mercy Church, and that's the place I want us to be. I don't want us to find book, chapter, and verses that we can use to say, you know what, we did our side of the the, the equation. We held up our end of the bargain, and you didn't, so you know what, good luck with all that. No, if it's not time yet, we understand that it's not time yet, and we wait, and we pray, and we hope, expecting, fully expecting that a day is coming when we're going to see God reach them, rescue them, redeem them, and we pray and hope that we get to be front row witnesses of that work of God. And if God asks us to be a part of that restoration, that we're standing ready to serve, 
to say what we have to say, to be patient, to let people make mistakes. You know, if you, if you keep reading, Peter, in, Peter intuitively knows this is always going to be a challenge, right? And he's the first one who says, okay, well, wait a minute, how many times am I going to have to do that? Like, just tell me how many times. Like, seven times? And Jesus is like, eh, 70 times seven. Which is another way to say, quit keeping score, Peter. Just be grace, be mercy, be that eternal new beginning for one another. That's who we are. It's who we're called to be. And it doesn't matter if we've made mistakes as a church before in, in doing the kinds of things Jesus says we can do and in reaching people the way Jesus says. I know that we've tried before and it hasn't worked. we got to try again and always again. We're going to sing together now. And, and as we do, I hope and pray that you have someone in your life that you can think of who, who desperately needs to have more of Christ be a part of who they are, right? And I, I hope and pray that as we sing this song, as we visit after church, as we leave this place, that we are open in new ways, maybe unexpected ways to say, God, I have, I have basically written that person off. I, I have tried and it hasn't worked, and so I, I just don't have any hope for them. My, my challenge to you is, to that person in your life who you've given up on, try again. Try again. Pray again. Hope again. God only knows what's going to happen next. Let's stand together and sing.